everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I'm the co-director of Charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is Billboard's Deputy Editor Digital, Katie Atkinson. Oh, hey, Keith. How are you? I'm doing well. About yourself? Well, I am swell, uh, because I wanted to say welcome to the podcast, you know, because we got fun and games. Uh, (laughs) We've got everything you want, because... The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts, and sometimes even rock! In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. And as you might have guessed from Keith's intro, <laughs> yeah. Andrew will be talking with Uproxx cultural critic Stephen Hyden about the 30th anniversary of Guns N' Roses' classic Appetite for Destruction album. They'll discuss Stephen's recent list for Uproxx, ranking every track on the album, talk about why the set tends to tower over the band's catalog, and have a heated debate over the merits of Paradise City. Well, take me down to that discussion. <laughs> oh, man, nothing but puns. Well, first, uh, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review while you're at it. If you have any questions for us, you can tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or at KT Atkinson. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. Okay, Katie, fun fact. Did you know that the Appetite for Destruction album generated three top 10 hits on the Billboard Hot 100, including the number one, Sweet Child of Mine? And the album is certified at 18 times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America and remains the highest certified debut album in U.S. history. I knew all of that. You did? <laughs> no. <laughs> do, do you, do, are you a big fan of Appetite for Destruction? It's oh, an amazing I mean, album. It is uh, so good. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was young when it came out, but still knew all these songs, every one of them. So it was just like a huge cultural impact. It is, it is a classic album for a reason. It is abs- if, you, if you haven't listened to the album, just go listen to it. Yourself a favor. And that's the reason why it's the feature of today's Coming Around Again. So here we go. Hello and welcome back to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast celebrating milestone anniversaries in the music world. A uh, big one this week, we got uh, turning 30 this upcoming uh, Friday, July 21st, one of the, the best-selling rock albums ever, I think the best-selling debut album ever, uh, Beloved Rock album, just got a 10.0 repertory review on Pitchfork. It's uh, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. Uh, And here to talk about it with us over the phone, we got uh, Uproxx cultural critic and host of the Celebration Rock podcast, Stephen Hyden. What's up, Stephen? Not much. I'm excited to talk about Appetite. Yeah. Uh, So, like all that stuff, the the, the incredible sales, the incredible acclaim, general reputation, one of the best debut albums, one of the best rock albums, all that stuff – you're good with that, right? Like, you know, you don't have any problem with with that general designation for appetite. Not at all. I, I mean, I I don't know exactly where it would fall among, you know, the great rock albums. You know, if you were going to make a list, you know, if it would be number thirteen or number nine or mm-hmm. number twenty seven or whatever. But it definitely, you know, deserves to be mentioned among the best rock records ever. And what are your own? What's your own kind of personal history with Appetite? What, what do you remember about when it came out? Your your earliest impressions of GNR, that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, my memory of it is that Guns N' Roses 
uh, was a huge band on MTV right around the time when I started kind of being a conscious music fan. You know, because I'd, I'd watch MTV before that, listen to the radio, but I never bought, like, tapes, really, uh, until, you know, like 11 or 12 years old. And I, I remember seeing a video for Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, I was probably in the fifth grade or so, fourth, fifth, sixth grade around there. And um, this is going to sound like a cliche, but it's true. I mean, they were the first band that I was, like, scared of. Mm-hmm. You know, like, when I, when I saw them on TV, uh, they just seemed like they were, like, chaos personified. You know, that, that anything could happen when when they were on screen. And, uh, you know, they, they seemed like they could, you know, that, that they, you know, they might either, like, steal your your girlfriend or they might beat you up or, you know, any number of horrible things you thought these guys were capable, capable of. And yet they were also extremely charismatic. So as much as you were frightened of them, you also couldn't take your eyes off them. Um, so that's my, that's my memory of that. I mean, they, I, I don't think I've ever had an experience with a band since then. I mean, it had to do with the band, but it was also the time of life that I was in. I was young enough and naive enough to actually be scared by a rock band yeah. at that time, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, they definitely made a, a very strong impression on me immediately. And I'm curious, just because uh, you know they were already sort of, you know, they, they, I don't know if they were on the, their way to breaking up or if they were just kind of out out of fashion in general when I was starting to listen to music. But when, when you were growing up, like, uh, were there certain kinds of kids that listened to Guns N' Roses? Was there like a, a delineation between the kids who did and the kids who didn't, or was it just one of those bands that like everybody you knew was into? Well, you know, I my memory of it is that it evolved with Guns N' Roses. There were certainly the kids, you know, like in my school they were called. The grits. <laughs> I don't know how universal that was. That was like the like the bad kids, you okay. know, the kids that had, you know, like the long mullets and like, you know, had like the, the jean jackets and with like, you know, like Metallica patches on on them and stuff. So that was like the beginning of Guns N' Roses. Maybe that was like when Welcome to the Jungle came out, because uh, you know, because that record took a while to really take off. It came out in '87, but it really wasn't until like the summer of '88 or so when mm-hmm. it really became. A major record, like, like Sweet Child of Mine, I think was like the single that pushed them over the top. And Sweet Child of Mine, of course, is you know a ballad, and that was like the number one song in the country. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that Guns N' Roses had top ten uh, Billboard hits, but they yeah. did several hits uh, off of Appetite, and, and Sweet Child of Mine was a number one song. So by that time, it was really mainstreamed. Like everyone liked Guns N' Roses by then. And then I think the next single after that was Paradise City, which is a pretty poppy song. So, you know, that I think also broadened their appeal. And then, of course, you get to GNR Lies, and they're doing, like, Patience by then. Like, you know, this, like, pretty acoustic song. So, you know, over the course of a couple of years, they definitely went from being sort of an outsider band to a band that, like, everyone listened to. You know, they were, like, inescapable, I think. You know, like, by 88, 89. So in the years following that, though, as, as you know, kind of the, the, the rise of alternative rock changed the, the face of, of the rock mainstream in America, uh, did, did Guns N' Roses become uncool, or, or were you always sort of still in with them, even as bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana kind of replaced them at Rock Center? Yeah, I mean, you know, when rock history is written, it tends to make these seem, it, it tends to make these, like, changes seem much quicker 
Sure. And more clear cut than they actually were at the time. I mean, you know, the Use Your Illusion albums came out the same month as Nevermind came out. So, like, when those records came out, the, the GNR records, I mean, I was there right away. I mean, those were, the Use Your Illusion albums were, like, probably the most anticipated albums of my life at that point, you know, because it had been so long since right, Appetite. Yeah. I'd never looked forward to albums like that ever in my life. Then, of course, you know, by the end of 91, into 92, you know, Nirvana was was really huge, and then Pearl Jam really came in in 92. Um, but, I mean, I still liked Guns N' Roses. I mean, you know, like Kurt Cobain would, would flag off Axl Rose a lot. And there was that whole thing at the 1992 Video Music Awards where Axl and Kurt had the feud backstage, you know, so that kind of manifest itself it went from being sort of a metaphorical thing to like a real life thing uh by that point but you know i mean i, I feel like I, I i went through a phase where i probably didn't like guns and roses as much just because the usual the usual illusion albums um were pretty bloated at the time and like they, they seemed disappointing i mean i mean now i love those records but at the time they seemed like a letdown mm-hmm. um but i came back to gnr i think pretty quick um, and I think a lot of people, you know, if you liked grunge, I think a lot of those people still like Guns N' Roses and they liked Metallica and stuff like that. I, I, I don't think in the audience there was that big of a gap really, uh, with those bands. Well, taking it back a little bit to, uh, to Appetite for Destruction, obviously, uh, you have a piece that I think will be live by the time this podcast goes up where you rank every song on the album. Uh, so when you were doing that, were, were there any decisions, any, any particular rankings that you either found like particularly stressful or or just anything that kind of surprised yourself maybe uh, as you were doing it well i mean like my four favorite songs on the record are all pretty close i mean the number one song was pretty clear Mm -hmm. but like two through four were somewhat interchangeable um like my number one song was welcome to the jungle i think that's a solid number one i feel like most people would probably say welcome to the jungle uh, I mean, it's just such an incredible song. Like, like in my piece, I went through and just talked about like all of the sort of catchy hooks in that song, um, and I counted like a dozen. <laughs> like, there's a dozen things in that song that you remember, whether it's you know the opening guitar riff, Axel's you know kind of police siren like wail at the beginning, to like lines like "Feel My Serpentine," mm-hmm. which I still don't really know what that means, but like you know. That's that like a pretty catchy part of the song. Um, so I mean, it's just an amazingly well-written song. I think it, it, it's super catchy. And then I had uh, Mr. Brownstone it was my number two, which I guess might be somewhat controversial because it wasn't a single. But um, I just think of that as being such a definitive Guns N' Roses song, like uh, as far as just being like a. I mean, it's, it's a song about heroin, even though it sounds more like a cocaine song to me than a heroin song because it's so funky and upbeat. You know, sure, you, you yeah. think heroin songs should be sort of slower. Um, but it just has that sort of menacing quality that's also really cool and productive. You know, that that thing that people love about Appetite, I think, is in Brownstone. And then Sweet Child of Mine was my, my number three. And then Rocket Queen was my number four. Um, Rocket Queen, you know, I think Welcome to the Jungle... You could say you could. I think that's in the running for like the best side one track one ever. You know, I think it would certainly be nominated. You know, if you were gonna 
talk about that. I also think Rocket Queen is like one of the best album closer songs. Um, the one thing that's kind of sketchy about Rocket Queen is that there's that part in the song where Axel recorded himself having sex mm-hmm. with Steven Adler's girlfriend. And um, Is that story 100% verified, by the way? Like, have they both kind of come out on record and said, yes, that is actually what happened in that studio? Yeah, well, Brian Hyatt of Rolling Stone did a story uh, on Appetite 10 years ago for the album's 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. He actually talked to the woman who's having wow. in that song. And it's like, I remember hearing Rocket Queen as a kid and thinking, wow, like, Axel's having sex with someone on the song. It's amazing. Like, I thought it was so cool when I was a teenager. But then, you know, you grow up and you read this story in Rolling Stone where the woman talks about, you know, like she, she, you know, it was, she knew that she was being recorded. So she consented to being recorded, but she talks about how much shame she had because mm-hmm. of this. And it was like pretty embarrassing for her after the song came out. So it's kind of harder to enjoy the song <laughs> after you read that story. Yeah, it's kind of like a... that song is, it's kind of icky now, like when I hear that, because I know, uh, I know that, but yeah, you know. It's, it's almost an early, like on record example of revenge porn, right? Well, but again, like, well, I mean, it's not necessarily that because she knew she because I mean they had sex in a recording studio, mm-hmm. you know, so she knew this was going to go in a song. I think it was just something that like, you know, she said, "Yeah, that'd be great." I, I, I guess she was upset. The story is that she was upset at Stephen Adler because Stephen Adler had cheated on her. So, so she thought, "Well, I'm going to do all have sex with Axl Rose in the song to get revenge on him." So she probably thought that was a good idea at the time, but she didn't realize. Yeah, I was going to sell 18 million copies. Yeah, I was going to yeah, exactly. She didn't realize it was going to be one of the biggest albums of all time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in her defense, GNR was like not famous when they made this record. And uh, so she probably just thought, oh, I'll go on this record. No one will ever hear it. Meanwhile, like millions of people have heard it. So she clearly regretted it after that, I think. Right. Well, just going to your rankings for a second. Uh, you know, you said your number one is kind of an uncontroversial choice, and I, I would agree with that. I think. Uh... Welcome to the Jungle. It's certainly one of the great album openers of all time. I'd, I'd say if, if you had to kind of distill the essence of Guns N' Roses to one song, that would be the one that most of people would pick. Uh, and yeah, the hooks just come from every direction. It's unbelievable. Uh, I'm, I'm good with your number two and your number three. Uh, Rocket Queen number four is interesting to me because to me that's sort of the song that divides like like the mega Guns N' Roses fans from the casual Guns N' Roses fans. I think like if you read like writing by very passionate Guns N' Roses experts, fans, critics, uh, that's usually a, a song that they, they center in on, uh, despite the fact that you know, not only was it not a single, but it's not even a song that really gets played on you know, classic rock or any kind of radio, at least not that I've heard. Whereas you know, even though Mr. Brownstone and uh, you know, It's So Easy, those, those songs weren't singles either, but you'll still hear those from time to time. But you know, Rock yeah. of Queen, it's, it's a multi-part song. It's very long. It, it's, it's definitely not... An, uh, a particularly commercially accessible song, but that is the song that it seems to be like almost the key to the album. Uh, and this seems like as good a moment as any to kind of transition to my own feelings about Appetite for Destruction uh, because I personally don't get Rocket Queen. Uh, I've heard that song, I don't know how many times, uh, dozens certainly. I couldn't sing a line of it. I, I couldn't tell you a thing that definitively happens in the song beyond uh, you know the orgasm that we've already talked about at length. Uh, I don't think it, I think it's a good song, but I, I just don't have that connection to it. And indeed, like, even though I love the album in general, like, I, I do think that there are a couple songs on the second side that, that kind of 
I don't know, drag the album down for me or just kind of end up, you know, kind of spinning the band's wheels, repeating earlier parts of the album that are that are done kind of more more memorably. Uh, and you have a couple of those songs that I feel that way about at the, at the bottom of your list, too, I think, and, and Anything Goes and You're Crazy. But right. you don't see those as low points on the album, right? You just think that they're not quite as high as the, as the highest? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's a bad song on Appetite for mm-hmm. Destruction. There's, there's certainly songs that are lesser songs. But, you know, if you have Welcome to the Jungle and you have Sweet Child of Mine, like these sort of iconic songs that everyone loves, if you're anything goes, or you're crazy, or you're out to get me, I mean, those songs, I mean, few songs can compete with the high points on this record. So I don't hold it against the album that, like, some songs aren't as good as the other ones. Um, I mean, I feel like, um, it's funny about, like, anything goes. Like, I had, that's, that's, like, the last song on my list, mm-hmm. but I also feel like that song. It's sort of like, I mean, to me, the, the reason I put it last is that in a way it's sort of like the most on-the-nose moment on the record. It's right. like basically what Jim Rose is saying, like, we're a wild and crazy band, you know, we do anything. There is, but like, I do love the opening line of that song. He says, um, I've been thinking about, thinking about having sex. <laughs> and I think that's like a very meta moment on the record, mm-hmm. because what he's saying is, is that he's not having sex. He's thinking about, thinking about it. So it's sort of like... <laughs> the process of like writing a song like, I, I kind of feel like that's what Appetite for Destruction is in a nutshell like he's had these experiences and he's turning them into art and like in a way he's kind of talking about that in the first line of the song so you know like, people talk about Welcome to the Jungle being a mission statement for the record I think like the Pitchfork Review says that in the first draft mm-hmm. but like I, I, in a way I kind of feel like anything goes is the mission statement because like a mission statement is typically just a straightforward statement of like what you're going to do and anything goes to me is that on that record and like it makes sense that it's the it's the 11th track on the album because of course guns and roses would be late with their mission <laughs> you know? fair point so even that song which i think i would agree is like a week it's relatively weak um i feel like it has its place on the record so yeah. i would defend it and I, I should say I should say that uh, even all my least favorite songs on this album, I think that uh, intros and, and just kind of like bursting out of the gate is something that that GNR probably does better than maybe any other band in history. Certainly, they're in the discussion. Like every single one of their songs, like just just explodes with a riff or a cowbell or, or just or a, a really memorable lyric like that. Anything goes. One. Uh, my right. pro- my problem with some of the songs aside too is that they don't really necessarily have. Uh, like the songs, the ensuing songs to really back it up. They have kind of weak choruses. Some of, some of them kind of like overlap instrumental aspects of the earlier tracks. Uh, so uh, we were talking about some of this, or you know, in, in very brief uh, before you came on the podcast. And I told you that you know I kind of had these conflicted feelings about Appetite for Destruction, and that I I might actually prefer uh, kind of like the overblown bombast of the Use Your Illusions era. And uh, y- your reaction was, and I quote, "You goddamn millennial." <laughs> So I'm curious. Uh, I think I, I generally understand what you're going for, but why, why specifically was that your visceral reaction to my saying that? Well, you know, I was mostly joking with that. Sure. I was mostly facetious. But, you know, I mean, I wonder how much of your reaction is informed by being told so many times that Appetite for Destruction is such a great record and in hearing these songs so many times and at some point just feeling like, just feeling tired of hearing about it which makes maybe the Usual Illusion record seem fresher. Like, do you, like, to what degree do you think that informs your thinking on this? 
Uh, definitely, like, to a very large degree, I would say. Uh, and two things kind of in response to that. One is that, yeah, it, it's it's particularly frustrating to me as somebody who does really find a lot to enjoy about the User Illusions albums. And e- even uh, to, to a much lesser extent, uh, Chinese Democracy, the Spaghetti Incident, uh, the second half of GNR Lies. I don't really know if the first half has that much to, to recommend it. But I, I just generally think that they were a more interesting and, and compelling and like unbelievably skilled band after the Appetite Era ended than people give them credit for. It seems like as time gets further and further away from Appetite, uh, fans or at least kind of the mainstream media and, and, and general classic rock heads take the sort of attitude of, oh, wow, like Appetite, what a perfect album, perfect debut album, unbelievable mission statement. Uh, you know, every song's great, you know, classics, hear them, hear them on radio all day. Uh, and then they did some other stuff and that was, uh, you know, some good, some bad, but, but appetite, appetite is, is where it's at. And yeah, I, well, I was going to say, I mean, I love the use your illusion albums. Like mm-hmm. it's funny because in most, I would say nearly every conversation I have about Guns N' Roses, I'm the one defending use your illusion. <laughs> so it's weird to be on the other side of this. Sure. But, I mean, because I agree, I, I love the bombast of those records. Mm. It, it, to me, what's attractive about the Use Your Illusion era is that, I, I mean, I feel like another band could come along and make a record like Appetite for Destruction. I, 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 and in a way, right. I feel like it's done. I feel like the first Oasis record, I think, reminds me a lot of Appetite. I think the first Strokes record... I was, I was going to mention the first Strokes record, but you, you go on. Why, why, the, why the first Strokes record? Well, to me, like what, like Oasis and The Strokes, and those are the two examples that come to mind. I think what they took from Guns N' Roses was that if you act like a rock star, people will believe that you're a rock star. You know, like when you listen to Appetite, you feel like they're already famous, even though that they weren't. I mean, they were poor guys living on the Sunset Strip when they made that record. But like, there's there's just a a swagger and there's an enormity to how they sound on that record where, you know, it just feels like, oh, Axel was already hugely famous. And, I, you know, and Oasis has the same thing on Definitely Maybe and The Strokes have it on Is This It, too. They have that same quality. Um, so, you know, that's hard to pull off. You know, you have to have a certain kind of self-confidence or self-delusion or whatever you want to call it to pull that off. But, but anyway, I mean, I think someone else could replicate that. But, like, the Use Your Illusion albums... Um, I just, there's not enough money in the music industry anymore. <laughs> you know, for a band to put out two double records on the same day that mm-hmm. are just so overblown like that. So, like, uh, I'm really attracted to those albums for that reason. But, you know, part of what makes the User Illusion albums so interesting is the fact that Appetite was their first. You know, sure. like, their pivots off of this sort of base that Guns N' Roses was. So, like... I agree. I mean, I don't. I don't think Appetite is a perfect record. I don't think any record is a perfect record. But um, it did set a template, not just for Guns N' Roses, but I think for rock music in general. Um, I mean, I think now when people talk about rock music, the definition that they have in their head is something that is sort of like Guns N' Roses, and that's why people keep saying rock music is dead. Right. You know, because people keep expecting that another band like GNR or like Nirvana, like this sort of outsider band that is kind of punky and hard rock and they come out of nowhere and they take over the culture. Like people keep waiting for a band like that to happen again. And rock music is actually much broader than that. 
you know, but I really think that that has sort of formed how people think about it. Like, I think this record, and never mind, you know, they kind of define what rock and roll is now, I think, in the last 30 years. The other thing that I did want to kind of talk about, uh, you know, going back to the, the idea of my, you know, my age kind of being, you know, weighing on my uh, my opinion of appetite versus user illusion, is that uh, I I came up basically in the the mid to late '90s. So by that time, Guns N' Roses, you know, they were off contemporary rock radio, basically, you know, which was mostly alternative and, and based through Nirvana and Pearl Jam bands like that, and they weren't yet old enough to be considered classic rock. So my my first real exposure to them for for a long time really was through MTV, uh, and you know they would play the old videos you know on, on weekend countdowns where they would do the you know the 100 greatest videos of the 80s or 100 greatest videos of all time, that sort of thing. That's that's how I I first kind of was introduced to the world of Guns N' Roses, and the Use Your Illusion videos were these you know they, they were like the album. They were these unbelievably overblown, bombastic, gorgeous, big budget productions. Uh, you know they were they were total nonsense, but they were compelling nonsense, and and they they had rewatchability and and there was always stuff that you were picking up on the that you didn't notice the last time you watched them and there were these these kind of entire mini universes of music videos and that really spoke to me at the time uh and you go back to the appetite videos and it's not that i mean the, the welcome to the jungle video i would say is iconic also because it has you know axel in the straight jacket and it has him coming off the bus with the hasty and all that and, and that, that certainly is like that, that that's one of the defining images of guns and roses too but the other videos are pretty basic. They're pretty rote. They're, you know, it's, it's rehearsal footage for Sweet Child of Mine, and it's them performing at Giant Stadium for Paradise City. But they don't really captivate the imagination the way that the Use Your Illusion videos did. And it, it was especially resonant to me because when I was first watching MTV and I first really got into it, uh, the biggest artist on MTV was Puff Daddy. And this didn't even really become clear to me until like much later in life. And then I, I saw an interview with him where he actually explicitly said this where he said that basically what he was trying to do with the No Way Out videos, which also kept scaling up, 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 up. And, and you, know, there, you know, he had videos that were 8, 15, 20 minutes long and, you know, the, filled with guest stars and ridiculous plots and all that. He said, I was trying to be Guns N' Roses, basically. Like, I, I, I saw what they did. It looked like fun. It looked awesome. And, and that was kind of, they were kind of the template for him taking rap to the heights that rock reached in the late 80s and early 90s. And so I think that that's a part of the Guns N' Roses, I don't know, their mythology or just their, uh, their innovation that kind of gets overlooked uh, sometimes or it's almost seen as a negative sometimes because the videos were kind of nonsensical and because the, and not, all of, not all of them have aged particularly well in terms of their plots and in terms of some of the heavy-handed symbolism and imagery and just Axel being a crazy person. But it was a very important part of the Guns N' Roses brand to me and it's not... It wasn't represented in the Appetite videos, and it wasn't really represented on the Appetite album, aside from, I guess, maybe the second half of Sweet Child of Mine and Rocket Queen, where they do kind of stretch into those ambitious stretches. But for the most part, it's a pretty you know, stripped-down rock and roll album, and that's great, and they're awesome at it. They're about as good as any band that's ever done it. But there's this entire other side to Guns N' Roses that's very important to my image of the band, and I feel like you know, emphasizing Appetite for Destruction above their entire catalog really kind of undersells that. Does, does any of that sound right to you? Does, does that check out at all? 
Well, I mean, I think your perspective on this is very much informed by going backward. Sure. Seeing those grandiose videos first and then going to the early videos where like the early videos seem sort of boring or staid in comparison to like November Rain and Don't Cry and Estranged where Axel is swimming around with dolphins <laughs> and stuff. Um, but I would say that at the time, like if you watch those videos in order, you know, like Welcome to the Jungle, you know, is... You know, that was the first video I ever saw of Guns N' Roses, and it was a very scary video because you see Axel in a, a, an electric chair in a straitjacket. Like, he's, they're, 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 they're presenting themselves as these sort of crazy people. You know, so it's sort of setting their early persona in a very vivid way, like in that video. Mm-hmm. Then you get to the Sweet Child of Mine video, and, like, you know, if you compare Axel to how he looks in that video versus the, the, uh, Welcome to the Jungle video, like in Welcome to the Jungle, he's very glammed up, and his hair is very poofy, and he doesn't look all that different from like other sort of glam metal singers of that time. In the Sweet Child of Mine video, however, his hair is straight, he's wearing the bandana, he looks a lot prettier than mm-hmm. he did in the Welcome to the Jungle video, and he's singing this love ballad. So, you know, I think that was another important turn in their image, because now they were this you know, they were a band that, like, I think sort of sprang off of the metal scene at that time, but they were already at that point sort of presenting themselves as, like, a sort of, like, a modern-day Rolling Stones, you know? And that, I think that video was the beginning of that. Like, they were very dressed down compared to a lot of the metal bands at that time. And a lot of metal bands then stopped wearing makeup and poofing up their hair, you know, after Guns N' Roses came on the scene. So... That's how that video is important. And then, like, the Paradise City video is interesting because, you know, I was talking before about how Guns N' Roses was, like, sort of presenting themselves as this huge band before they really were that huge. Mm-hmm. Like, in the Paradise City video, like, they're playing in a stadium. But if you look at the crowd, like, it's not <laughs> full because yeah, they it's, were open for Aerosmith, yeah. like, when that video was shot. But, like, the iconography of that video is like, wow, this is, like, a huge band. Like, you, you see that... And, and, I think that was like the purpose of like a lot of the sort of performance oriented videos at that time where, you know, this might be the only chance you get, you got to see the band, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, like GNR wasn't really playing award shows or they weren't playing anywhere else. So it's like, you get to see GNR play live maybe for the first time in that Paradise City video. And just like, you know, like when you would see Bon Jovi videos or Def Leppard videos, you know, they were always playing in these huge arenas and it just made you feel like, oh, this is a huge band. Everyone loves this band. I should go see this band. It's almost like a commercial to go see them play live. Um, so, I mean, I think that was also important for their, uh, for their growth and, and for sort of spreading the GNR gospel. So again, I would say that like those videos are important because if you, they kind of set the stage for them making those crazy videos because like they kind of it's like okay, Paradise City, we've, we've established now that GNR is a stadium rock band. Okay, so what does the stadium rock band do? Well, they make videos like November Rain and Estranged, you know. Mm-hmm. In a way, it almost like makes an argument for those later videos. And also, you have like the video for Patience. I talked about that. I think that's a pretty great video. Yeah, I, I don't know. I love videos about like rock bands on the road, and you know, because like in that video, like they're in the studio, 
and like they're singing the song, and then it shows them like hanging out in hotels, and it's sort of like the disillusionment with fame type chapter of GNR's history, um, and like and Slash is like handling his snake, and there's like a, a string of women that go in and out of this hotel room, you know. So it's a very sort of seedy thing. Um, you know, I don't know. To me, those early videos were about establishing GNR as a big time rock band. And then once you establish yourself as that, then you can go off and be ridiculous, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. yeah no, I and uh, I, I do love that Patience video, I should say. Like, it, it there there is a kind of sort of casual intimacy to it that, that really fits with the song. And, and yeah, there, there's images that kind of weirdly stick in your head, even if it's just, you know, Axel, Sha- you know, he, he does his little sachet and there's not even really a groove playing. And, and yeah, the, the, I, I do think that that video really captures something kind of, interesting and, and, and different about the band. And, and maybe you're right that Sweet Child of Mine and Paradise City do too. I, I hear what you're saying, that they kind of laid the groundwork and they sort of put them in contact with other like major American bands at the time. And and then that, that all makes sense to me. Uh, when I see the Paradise City video, all, all I see is is that, that you know, half-empty stadium and it feels like empty bombast to me. And uh, that, that's kind of my feeling about the song in general. Like, I, that, that's this is probably the one Guns N' Roses song where I, I most break from from traditional thinking and that like I'll give like the first 80 seconds of the song like all the credit in the world it's an amazing intro the way it builds is fantastic the the first run through the chorus is this unbelievably invigorating experience there, there's a reason why it's still playing at baseball stadiums and football stadiums till the end of time uh, but then there's still another five and a half minutes to go on the song and, it, and it, for, for my money like it's already taken its best shot and it just keeps going from there. And like you get to that four or four and a half minute mark and you think the song's over and there's a fake ending and it goes for another two minutes. And like it, it, to me, that, that idea runs out of ga- that, that song in general just runs out of gas really quickly. And then it just keeps on going for another five and a half minutes afterwards. Uh, All right. All right, man. I, I just want to review here, though. Sure. Because we're defending Use Your Illusion album. <laughs> uh, I'm aware. Album, album's right. full of super long songs that go on forever. Both albums that have a lot of filler on them, and but you're criticizing Appetite for having filler and for having a song that goes on for too long. Is, is this the argument you're making here? I'm aware of the mild hypocrisy here. That I, I am not trying to ignore that, but I will say in my defense a couple things. Uh, one is that uh, the Use Your Illusion songs, I, I, I would tend to think that they evolve in, in ways that Paradise City doesn't necessarily. Paradise City just kind of you know, it doubles down a couple times, but it never really changes course in ways, at least not in any way that I find particularly interesting. Whereas a song like Estranged or Coma, and especially November Rain, which which for my money is is Axl Rose's masterpiece. Uh, I would say those songs, uh, they take you to unexpected places. They kind of, you know, they they, they, they have sort of twist endings that, that kind of make you reconsider everything that came before them. Uh, and so those songs, I think, earn their length. Whereas, whereas Paradise City, I mean... Let, let me ask you this. Uh, have you ever heard the song or have you ever done the song yourself, karaoke? I would never do a GNR song uh, karaoke. I, I could not sing. I would not, I, I would, you know, it would be like doing a Journey song or something. I, I could not sing like Axel. So, no, I, I've never done Paradise. I, but have you, have you ever heard it done karaoke? Have you ever sat through anybody else doing Paradise City karaoke? No, but I mean, if, if you're going to say that it's tedious when someone else sings it, I would say that like 98% of songs sound tedious uh, when someone's doing a karaoke. That, so that's that's true, but not, not like this one. This one is an, a whole 
a whole new level of tedium, a level of karaoke what? tedium you didn't even know existed beforehand. Because it's just you, – you get to like about the halfway point and then you're just looping the chorus over and over again. There's, there's, no, real, there's no real development at that point. There, there's, there's just repetition. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that while obviously, uh, you know, the Use Your Illusion albums, you know, they, they go nuts with the nine-minute songs and it does get a little bit exhausting at, at, at moments. But for my money, and this, this is somebody who, you know, like I consider, you know, the, the White Album is my favorite Beatles album, Melancholy Infinite Status is my favorite Smashing Pumpkins album. So I'm coming from a slightly biased place here. But for my money, uh, the difference between like five or six filler tracks on a 28-song album uh, is much less considerable than three songs on an 11 track album. I think that well, you're being very generous by saying there's only five or six songs <laughs> on uh, Use Your Illusion album. I mean, and again, I say that with love because I've come to love like pretty tied up and songs mm-hmm. like that. Like, um, but you know, there's like two different versions of Don't Cry on the Use Your Illusion album. Oh, you know, give me both of them. Give me a third. My one. world. We don't need this. We don't need the one on Use Your Illusion too. I mean, but. Um, I mean, you talk about surprise enemies. I mean, Paradise City does like have that awesome sort of like double time part at the end, like where the whistle kicks in. I mean, that's a whole different part of that song. You have, like you said, the amazing intro, like you're, which they still play in like every stadium, really, like on the planet. You're going to hear the beginning of Paradise City. Um, I don't know. I just feel like that's another example of a song where the where the verses are catchy. The uh, chorus is catchy. You know, there's a great guitar solo in the end by by Slash. There's that bridge in the middle where they go, uh, that that walk away part. Just walk away! <laughs> you know that part? Yeah, that's, and that's, that's, that's okay that's, for that's a second. Part. I don't know. I mean, the, the verse uh-huh. is... The verse has never really tracked with me just because it was, it was always impossible for me to understand what he was saying. Uh, it's possible that if you sat down with a lyric sheet, maybe, maybe you know, the contrast between the verses and the chorus gives you some sort of new dimension to the well, song. The lyrics are actually really good. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I write about this in my story. I mean, the the song is about. I mean, the first line of the song is about. You, Axel talks about being a street urchin who lives under the street. Like he's so poor that he lives under the street. He doesn't live on the street. He lives under the street. And, um, I feel like what that song is about is chasing something like the American dream, if you want to call it that that you're not sure actually exists. Like, this, this idea of, like, a paradise city um, is something that he was thinking about as, a, as someone who grew up poor. And in a way, he was trying to imagine, like, what it would be like. Uh, well, I mean, because he goes to L.A., he's trying to make himself famous, and now he's sort of nostalgic for home. And he's sort of romanticizing his home now, and he's thinking about that. I think there's a pretty interesting contrast between like the lyrics and, and the music in that because the music is so anthemic and in a way you don't really even pay attention to the lyrics except for the chorus. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, you bring up this karaoke thing. I mean, I would never... I, I don't have to care about the karaoke thing because I can just listen to Appetite for Destruction and it sounds awesome. Like I just want to hear Axel sings it, sing it. And when Axel sings it, I think it sounds great. Um, so... I don't know, man. I think I can see being sick of this song because it, it is among the most overplayed Guns N' Roses songs. But um, I don't know, man. I I feel like when this song comes on the radio, I uh, I'm usually happy. Like I will listen to Paradise City on the radio even now, having heard it, you know, thousands of times. Yeah, I, I mean, 
again, the, the first minute or so, I, I'm not going to try to deny that. Like, there, there's a reason why the song feels good when you hear it, and it does feel good to me too, and and to I imagine just about every every major rock fan out there. But yeah, I, I, maybe a radio edit would have been merciful. You know, it's not often I find myself asking for radio edits of classic rock songs, but that that's one where really just just lopping off the last three minutes or the last two and a half, something like that, would have gone a long way. And I, I was, do you want this to be like Guided by Voices songs? <laughs> I would be very interested to hear the Guided by Voices style GNR album. I probably wouldn't like it as much as Use Your Illusion, but it would make for an interesting contrast, I think. Like the GBV one would just be like the, the first minute. It'd just be like that chorus, and then it would fade out. And go yeah, you, you do that. You, you, you loop the chorus once. You maybe have like a real short bridge, and then, and then you just have that fake ending, except it's not a fake ending. It's the actual ending. And then that would have been my perfect version of Paradise City. But I just think... You get you get bored by Paradise City, but you will sit through coma for ten minutes and be like, "No, this song is exactly as long as it should be." because well, like, coma is surprising to me. You know, I, you know, obviously, I haven't heard coma as many times as I've heard Paradise City, <laughs> and I probably never will. But and by co- the way, I'm not knocking coma. I love sure. coma, defending both songs. But I'm just saying, it'd be it's weird to me that you're bored by this super catchy single, but like not by some of these sort of epic long songs in the Asia Illusion. Coma has stuff to keep you engaged beyond, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's not even really much of a chorus to Coma, but it has the main riff. It has, uh, you know, like that, that little like babbling section of Axel's girlfriends complaining about him. And it has, you know, kind of the, the, the goofy sound effects. And I don't know that that, that that keeps the song moving for me in a way that it does with Paradise City. And, and I was thinking about this uh, as I was kind of formulating my, like what, what my argument was going to be listening to Paradise City last night on the way home. I was thinking, well, I love Hey Jude by the Beatles. Uh, couldn't I say all the same things about Hey Jude that I'm currently saying about Paradise City? And when, why, why wouldn't that make sense? And I think the, the main thing that separates them, for me at least, is that uh, Hey Jude builds to it. You know, it, for, for, you know it, when, when it first starts, it's just Paul on the piano, and it kind of very slowly unfolds. It adds one element at a time. It adds uh, you know, a melodic counterpoint. It adds some harmony. It adds uh, some percussive elements. And so that when it, when it really hits... The, the the na-na part at the end that goes on forever, like it feels like a major climax and it feels like you really earned it because you've kind of sat through its slow developing. Paradise City gives you the best parts right away. Like within a minute, I mean, you can maybe say that there's other good parts in the song and I couldn't necessarily disagree with that, but I don't think you could argue that like all of the best parts and all the iconic parts, the parts people really remember and love about the song, they're all spent by the first 80 seconds. By the time you hear that whistle and the song really kicks in, like that that's when you cut off the jock jam, right? Well, look, I mean, Paradise City builds because there's that part at the end where it goes to the double time and it goes crazy. And I'm pretty sure, okay, I'm going to go see GNR in a stadium uh, next weekend. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> that the end of Paradise City, there's going to be about 40,000 people going, uh, can I swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. I'm pretty sure at the end of Paradise City, there's going to be about 40,000 people going ape shit, like mm-hmm. at the end of that song. Uh, because. You know, when it gets really fast and like Axel's and, and uh, sorry, Slash is just going crazy with his guitar solo and stuff, it's pretty damn exciting. You know, I think that's a pretty iconic part of that song. Um, so I don't know. I I understand what you're saying. I feel like you are sick of this song, maybe. Well, there's no yeah. question of that, certainly. Oh, but like, but your argument that it's not a good song is not compelling to me. No, I appreciate I'm- you. But I don't know. I, I feel like Paradise City is another example of a song on Appetite for Destruction that just has multiple 
entry points. And uh, so I don't know. Agree to disagree on this, but yeah, and and I will say that uh, I don't think I have ever once talked to a single person that agrees with me about this. I think that this is <laughs> perhaps my my least popular opinion of, of all the many unpopular opinions I've ever expressed in my career as a music critic. So, well, uh, you know, I I don't agree with you, but I I respect that you're making this argument. Like I I appreciate that you believe this. So. Uh, Keep making it. I appreciate that, sir. Uh, I guess one last thing before before I let you go. Uh, You know, this album's been talked to death, obviously, uh, 30 years of increasingly glowing reviews. I guess they weren't as uniformly ecstatic when the album first came out, but I I would think that if you were to publish a takedown of this album now, you'd be basically be be excoriated from all corners of the internet. Uh, And and we've kind of come at it from every which way. Uh, Is there anything about it that you still think is maybe a little undervalued or or maybe hasn't quite been given the proper credit for just why this album was such a huge, great, everlasting album? I think just the songwriting on it. I mean, I think when people talk about Appetite, they go right to the mythology of Guns N' Roses and just how, you know, how crazy they were at that time and all the sort of ridiculous rock star behavior that they did. Um, But when I listen to the record, especially, you know, I've, I've been listening to it a bunch lately because I just wrote about it. Sure. The thing that I'm really taken by is how well they were able to write these songs in spite of all of the stupidity that was going on around them. You know, most stuff that they committed themselves. Like, all this, you know, it's all their, it's all self-inflicted stupidity. But, um, you know, again, like, a song like Welcome to the Jungle or Sweet Child of Mine or um, Paradise City or, you know, these songs... You know, there's just so much going on in every song. There's so many entry points, so many hooks. Um, it's just, I, I just think that's maybe overlooked a little bit. It's, it's kind of a miracle to me that, like, Desmond Child or uh, Jim Steinemann or some song doctor didn't work on this record. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that would have come out by now if that were true. I mean, these guys actually wrote these amazing songs, and they performed them. And um, I think that's why the album endures. These songs are just so durable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, maybe that is kind of a weird thing to say because this album is so celebrated, but, you know, I, I just think that maybe the antics of Guns N' Roses sometimes it sort of overshadows um, just how good they were at doing what they did in spite of all of the obstacles they put in front of themselves. You know, to make a good record. Yeah, that's all very fair and very true. And I I would say that I'd be very tempted to hear what the sound of Guns N' Roses working with Jim Steinman would be. But I think we did get to hear it with the Use Your Illusion album. So uh, I guess uh, guess everything turned out as it should be there. Uh, Well, well, thank you so much, Stephen Hyden, for coming on, talking about this iconic album with us. Uh, Look for Stephen's podcast, Celebration Rock. Uh, Got a book out, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. Uh, Anything else you want to plug right now, Stephen? Uh, just, uh, you know, find my writing at uprocks.com. There you go. All right, we'll look for it there. Look forward to reading uh, reading that ranked list of every song, and uh, talk to you soon, man. All right. Thanks a lot, man. 